Hello, and welcome to the Mobile User Acquisition Show, a podcast to help you unlock tremendous growth for your app. My name is Shaman Rao. I'm the CEO of the boutique growth marketing firm, Rocketship HQ, and host of the podcast, Mobile User Acquisition Show. In each episode, we feature experts in the field of mobile growth and discuss strategies, tips, and pointers from the leading edge of mobile growth marketing. By the end of each episode, you will have gained actionable and tactical insights that will help you make more informed decisions in your own work around growth. The Mobile User Acquisition Show is produced by Meryl Vincent, Content Marketing Manager at Rocketship HQ. Our guest today is Joachim Akron, a gaming industry veteran with a remarkable journey. He is the founder of Elite Game Developers and General Partner at F4 Fund. Earlier, he co-founded Next Games, which was later acquired by Netflix. With a ton of experience, both as an operator and investor in the gaming world, Joachim has unique insights to share. In today's episode, we dive into the current landscape of the gaming industry, challenges faced by early stage gaming startups, and Joachim's own journey from operator to investor including the fascinating intersection of writing and investing. I'm excited to welcome Joachim Akron to the Mobile User Acquisition Show. Joachim, welcome to the show. Thanks, sir. This is great to be here and talking with you about these things. Absolutely, Joachim. Uh, I'm also thrilled and honored to have you because certainly you've been on our invitee list for a very long time. For very good reason. You're one of the most prolific writers I know. You write and create prodigious volume, and it's certainly something I follow, as do a number of gaming entrepreneurs, gaming developers, and certainly you're one of the most looked up to people in the gaming space. So for all of those reasons, I'm excited to have you on the show. You know, to kick things off, I would love to start with understanding the transition between your past roles and your current role. What inspired your transition from being an operator to an investor? And if you could give people a bit more of color about what your past life as an operator was like, what your current life as an investor is like, and what was the bridge between the two? Yeah, happy to do that. So I was for 15 years, an operator and a founder in gaming companies. That was a great journey. My first company started in my 20s, 2005, to do virtual worlds. Ended up pivoting to social games. Ran that quite well for a few years, then ended up not being able to raise another round when Facebook became a sort of inhospitable place for gaming. <laughs> I moved over to do something else. I had to take a break in startups and went to Supercell for a while and saw the launch of Clash of Clans and Heyday and wanted to get back into startups, started a company called Next Games, which made games like The Walking Dead, No Man's Land and Walking Dead, Our World. We worked on a lot of external IP. Yeah. Then we built a game called Stranger Things with Netflix, and that ended up becoming an acquisition where Netflix bought the company. My transition started in 2019 when I started doing angel investing. I think what inspired that transition to the sort of like air quotes, dark side of this space was Mm -hmm. that like I realized that I could transition the curiosity 
for entrepreneurship that I had. And I really didn't know anything else I would want to do besides spend time doing entrepreneurship, working with entrepreneurs, doing stuff like that myself. I felt that as an investor, I could still be involved in a process where I learn a lot and feed my curiosity for entrepreneurship. But it meant that I didn't have the sort of like, it wasn't the same existential nature anymore as would a founder going through kind of a process where it's never the easy track, really. Yeah. Um, so in a way, now I'm building a venture fund called F4 Fund with David K. Yeah. And it yeah. has its elements of being an operator, a founder, where you're operating sure. the fund, actually. Yeah, and that's what inspired you to move over to the other side of the table, if you will, right? And I do imagine just having been an entrepreneur and an operator gives you a unique window into what's important for entrepreneurs and operators. And certainly that is something I see reflected very clearly in a lot of your writing as well. You know, which is very refreshing as compared to some of the writing that can come across as out of touch with what the day-to-day -day is. I think you've seen refreshingly in tune with what's out there. You know, and to switch gears into your writing, again, it's not everybody that writes. It's not an easy skill, not for everybody, certainly. What inspired you to start writing and start sharing your thoughts and experiences online. Yeah, there's a few things there. I was very much inspired by podcasters, newsletter writers, bloggers, all of my career. And I attempted several times to start writing blogs. I did one when we were starting Next Games. I ended up not having time to continue that as we were doing the founder journey. I picked up that sort of outlet for my creativity again after I left Next Games and started my newsletter and podcast in 2019 called Elite Game Developers, where it's so much focusing around entrepreneurship and gaming. And I love sharing the thoughts, writing, seeing people's reactions to what I'm putting out there. I think mm -hmm. it's an outlet that I really need to have. And I've always skewed towards this kind of content creation on stuff that I'm curious about sharing that side of things. Yeah. And uh, I like how you mentioned that it's almost an outlet for your curiosity. I think it reminds me of somebody, a coach, and I forget what the attribution is, but they said, writing is thinking and writing is the process by which you figure out answers because there's some answers you can't think your way to unless you put them down on paper. Yes. And certainly I like the way you connected your curiosity to the act of writing. Yet, you know, on the surface, there would appear to be not a very clear connection between writing and investing. So is that a relation or how do you see the relationship between your writing and your work as an investor? Yeah, I think there's the fact that if you're putting yourself out there, like sharing what you think, I think good things happen. People who resonate with what you're talking about and saying they will reach out and they will follow you. I've grown my LinkedIn following to close to 20,000 people already in, the, in like mm -hmm. a matter of four years. I think, mm -hmm. you know, the way 
like as an investor, I could be deploying cash, but like I see it more as a way to grow in these kind of interesting journeys with founders who resonate with the, the thinking right. that I have and then come to me to to be part of the, the journey as an investor. Yeah. So from what you're saying, it's almost as a way of finding the people that would resonate with your thinking and philosophy that could potentially be a good fit for your fund. And, you know, not to digress too much, but a lot of your posts are not talking about take my 200 chat GPT prompts, yes. right? You're not like doing stuff that some would consider clickbaity, not at all, right? But you could argue that if you did, in theory, in some alternative universe of 200 chat GPT prompts, you'll get a lot more likes. So how do you think about writing that is optimized for likes versus what you currently do? Is that even a dichotomy you think about or make a conscious decision about? Yeah. And I'm also just fascinated because I certainly see a lot of traction, a lot of engagement that the bros, if you will, that post content that is, here's my prompts, here's my five secret formulas, you know, here's how you explode revenue overnight versus something that's much more sober, but much more sensible like you do. So that's a long-winded statement. But my question is, how, if at all, do you think about the dichotomy in those styles between your style and what could very well be the alternative? Yeah, I do think a lot about like showing up and just talking about what is on my mind versus what generates the best reaction and engagement on the platform. Like I think I would be doing more of that work if I would be feeling that, hey, this is a means to an end in a way mm -hmm. where then it, it leads to something where I, I can leave my way of working behind. And I definitely don't yeah. feel like that. This is more like a way of life than anything else sure. for me. So it's not about the likes and the reactions and everything. I'm not going after like validation for my work Certainly. in a way. So it's Certainly. more personal than that. Certainly. And it takes courage to tread that path. You know, certainly I have seen people who have gone over to that dark side and have become somewhat unrecognizable mutations of their former selves. So especially when you do have access to an audience, it's easy to just say, you know, I have X thousand people following me. Let's go crazy. And I think it takes courage to not follow that temptation. Uh, but, you know, I would also observe and point out, yes, for you, from what I see, it is a very personal journey, as you described. There are metrics you're optimizing for it. At, you know, at least that's my, the impression I get because you do have an email list. I believe you also have a course. You have a book, right? So, and those are valuable in and of themselves. So, if any, are the metrics or the outcomes that are important to you, if not the likes, considering there's an email list, there are books, there's stuff that actually you seem to be optimizing for yeah to be honest i was doing that earlier when i felt that okay there's so much to get to a point where this starts being something that people are picking up reaching the long tail of startup founders was kind of like the idea anyways that i, I sure. want to reach people who want to make startups who are into that sure. area 
and I didn't have the reach earlier. Now it definitely is. I do feel that when I meet any gaming entrepreneur, it's more likely that they are already a newsletter subscriber right. of mine. So I think right. that I've, I've gone to a stage now where I'm thinking, okay, I have the reach. What do I do right. now? Like it, it used to be like that I need to sure. put more work into it, but now it's more like, okay, I've, I can still do what I love here with posting, but I don't need to obsess over numbers anymore. For sure. Yeah. And, that definitely makes sense. It sounds like in the earlier days, it was more like you had to earn that attention. Again, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but now that you have enough of the attention and the following, it's less critical and important and you yeah. earn that. Yeah, I think like a difference there would be if I would be monetizing my content, sure. like doing sure. advertising, more like selling stuff. Sure. I think then sure. I would probably want to track more numbers as well. For sure. But I'm not sure. in that business. Like my For sure. angle is For to sure. be a, a startup investor. So, For sure. Yeah, and that's an interesting perspective because I have a course and a workshop series. It's called the Mobile Growth Lab, which I do monetize. And of course, there's a podcast like this, which is free. My observation has been that the monetized service is something that people take as more seriously as compared to the free service. So to me, it almost acts as a filtering mechanism for more serious people yeah. versus the free stuff, which is good. It has a wide reach, but almost the friction makes people more serious. And that's been my experience, even though the absolute dollar amount isn't as critical for me, just in the broader scheme of things, it doesn't make as much. I think it was very interesting to see your perspective being very different in terms of the shift away from looking at monetization. It sounds like we had very different sort of takes on that and very likely just because we have different goals, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. I used to do a pitching course. I haven't been promoting it because I really don't have the bandwidth to, to sure. take more enrollments. So the URL is yeah. not available anymore. Yeah. Uh, the angle that I saw with like these clients that I had who wanted to take my pitching course, it was very serious for them. And most of them have gone and raised funding after taking yeah. it this much seriously. And yeah. like I've even invested in a few of the companies that were in my sure. pitching course. So it totally yeah. resonates. Yeah. Right. And you know, to switch gears a bit, I get the impression that not every VC is comfortable sharing online because there is a potential for repercussions. You know, there are certain perceptions that can be created. Yeah. Is that something you think about? Is that a balance? Is that a needle you have to thread as an operator, That's as a VC that's also sharing online? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think the, the model that I appreciate a lot is that I've tuned myself to share what I think and not hold back. For certain, there's going to be misinterpretations, things like that, when I'm sharing stuff on LinkedIn and on the newsletter. I think for many VCs who have limited partners in their funds, it might also be a kind of um, an alignment question where it's more harder to align to a bigger group of people as a VC and then say what you think, which might not be aligned with what your LPs are thinking. So it's more sure. about for me as well, as a fund manager, I'm thinking more about the, the LPs 
being aligned with this kind of transparency that I want to practice. But yeah, I think it's also a lot of the personal preference of what you want to actually spend your days in. Because in a way, it's part of a marketing act as well. How much do you love doing that activity versus how much you're pushed into doing it because everybody else is doing it and things like that. Yeah, and I think that's one of the benefits of being independent by stance or in reality, right? And I think we are also in a fortunate position of being fairly independent for the podcast because sometimes when I talk to some ad tech people or even some of the measurement people, they're like, I could never say that because my PR team would come after me. And I'm like, yeah, I I feel fortunate. And I think it's also extremely valuable to be independent because you're saying things that no one is willing to say. And that can be hugely valuable if everyone else is just basically marching to the drumbeat of their PR team. Mm -hmm. So I, I can definitely understand that. Yeah, and to switch gears again, you know, something I've admired a lot about you, again, is which we just talked about is that you are very transparent, you're very candid. Some of this also comes from your own experience as an entrepreneur, as we just reflected on. Something that caught my eye in the research for this conversation was how you openly discussed some of your failures and your mentoring failures. Right. Tell us briefly about those failures and tell us how these have shaped your approach to mentoring now or investing for that matter, right? And not that there's a rigid line between those two. Yeah, that, this is a piece I wrote last winter called like failures in mentoring. So it, 10 years ago, I was spending a lot of time in, in Northern Finland in a city called Oulu, where for instance, Fingersoft Hill Climb Racing is the biggest gaming company there. There was a lot of startups when Nokia closed down the plants there and the facilities and people like a lot of engineering talent was getting startup funding and they were doing gaming companies. So it was an interesting time to go there, meet these very passionate people, very technically oriented. None of them had gaming experience. They wanted to do gaming startups. I was there to help them. And I felt a bit like a failure in many ways, since a lot of those, well, basically over 90% of those companies don't exist anymore or didn't Mm -hmm. exist for a long time. A couple of things that really I think about when it comes to mentoring somebody who's very green to the industry is not to sugarcoat things, rather give them like cold showers of, hey, this is the reality. That's something I didn't really do back then. I was very much, hey, this is like how gaming companies do things. You can emulate that. Why don't you look at these KPIs and start figuring out if you're doing the right things? But in the end, there was so much more steps in between that where they were standing and to get there where it like KPI measurement even makes sense because they didn't understand what's a fun game for Yeah. And they didn't know how to figure out how to make fun games, like what is great game design. So I was throwing people kind of like into the deep end of the pool versus mentoring them about figuring out how do you make games? Like how do you design fun gameplay, like novel feelings of, Hey, right. this is something fresh and I'm going to play it because I haven't played anything like this before. I'm going to spend time. So yeah, I think I picked up a lot about that as well, personally about like how games are made 
already. Yeah, and that definitely resonates. Uh, it certainly sometimes has seen parallels to in my work because I'm approached by a number of early stage apps and products. And oftentimes I have come to realize now that they don't know what they don't know. And I used to assume that they have, you know, A, B, C, D, E figured out and I would go to X, Y, Z. That if I, now I've become a lot more sensitive to the fact that, you know, we need to start with some sort of basics because not everybody has it figured out at that early stage. And yeah, and this certainly resonates. But like I said, I think what I do admire is that you did share this openly, which again, takes a lot of courage. And uh, what also I think resonated with me was that you shared it openly, but also shared takeaways that were valuable. And I think that's, again, very helpful and useful for people who are reading rather than it be very self-indulgent. Aha, I did something bad, you know. Thanks. Like, I think that's what I strive for with the content. Right? Certainly. And to switch gears again, Joachim, as of the time of this recording, which is October 2023, this isn't an easy time for games to fundraise. So tell us about what some of the underlying causes of this are. What are some of the pieces of advice you have for gaming companies and founders in this climate? And you're, this is the climate in which you're launching a fund. So mm. tell us a bit about the why of that. Yeah, for sure. Like the, I think what has happened in previous times for gaming, investing, gaming funds, startups was we had a long time of this 0% interest rate period where you had a lot of cheap money trying to find places and investing capital was perceived as a, a, a cheap way to actually deploy more. It was be, being deployed everywhere into crypto, like all, all, all sorts of like places found money. I think since the pandemic, we had the, the inflation and then the hike of the in interest rate. I think that landscape of funding for startups changed drastically because you had LPs who said that there's no, like we can't continue the rate we did before. We're going to be more selective. And then what really happens is there's a downstream effect to the, to the VC right. funds who also need to be more selective and pull back because they don't have the same resources to, to spend, even though they might have raised the, the big fund during the pandemic, which they're still investing from, they have a hesitancy to go to their LPs and ask for the capital call, which usually right. happens where you ask, like not like the 200 million in your fund isn't sitting in a bank account. You ask it from the LPs, like in, in small right. increments. So it's more like, okay, do you need to really do it right now? I don't want to liquidate my assets that are all in the red right now to give you more money for startups. So there's a, a pause that many funds have to have in, like put into place. But of course, like good deals will always be done. What that sure. means for startups is that investors are just much more selective now about investing. I think it's like five to 10 times harder to raise. Right. In a way, like if you have a team and a pitch deck, like if you're a mobile game studio, I think that's like those days are over for now. 
until like somebody says otherwise. I, I definitely have a lot of concern about all the mobile gaming startups out there. Like the ones that have proven that they can go longer and then show that there's traction. I think there's a lot of positive there for VCs as well to pull the trigger on a gaming company that isn't like bleeding cash. It's showing positive signs going to the next stage. So for founders who are just raising their first round or thinking about doing that, like like try to, to figure out, do you actually need the money right now? Could you first bootstrap and push forward to some more concrete things to show like customers, players, stuff like that? I think all of that matters now more than ever. Yeah, certainly right. And as you said, until somebody says things have changed fundamentally, this is going to be the state of affairs. And it's hard for a lot of entrepreneurs out there who are looking to fundraise. Joachim, this is perhaps a good place for us to wrap. This has been very insightful, very selfishly also, just because I have always been curious about your creative process. So it gives me an excuse to ask you and dive in and hopefully other people find that interesting and as well. Uh, but, you know, before we go, could you tell folks how they can find out more about you, everything you do and uh, your fund and how, if at all, they may be involved if that's something they would like to. Yeah, so my writing and stuff like that, the content, you can go to elitegamedevelopers.com. For my partner, David, who also writes, you can find that at gamestuff.substack.com. I think we have a different style of things we're talking about. So it's like, yeah. I think they're really like not mutually exclusive or anything. So for funding, we have f4.fund is the website where we do take in submissions and we try to, to answer to everybody who's applying. But yeah. Mm -hmm. that those are the places and of course like linkedin where i'm doing a lot of posting that's a great place to follow as well of course and uh, we will link to all of that in the show notes certainly for folks but for now Joachim, it is an honor and a pleasure to have you on the show thank you so much for being a guest thanks samant thanks a lot thank you for listening to the mobile user acquisition show if any of this was helpful or instructive I would love for you to leave us a review or rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fix. This podcast takes a ton of time, effort, and love to produce, and I deeply value every review and every piece of feedback that you share.